This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, I'm going to explain to you why Henry Cejudo is not necessarily to blame for the problems at 125 pounds and 135 pounds. We're going to talk to Anthony Pettis before his big fight against Donald Cerrone at UFC 249. And to what extent would a Cruz victory here be one of the all-time great sports comebacks? We'll have that discussion as well. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays, 1 p.m. East Coast time, right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. And don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. Let's do this. We're having a question about to what extent do we blame Cejudo for the championship woes, as it were, at 125 and 135 pounds. Now, Cobb, the king of bandits here on the show, the producer, has been a big... I don't know. Actually, I don't know what exactly your position is, but this is a question you've been wanting the show to get to for quite some time. If you can step to the mic here for just a second, sir, very, very briefly. Why does this question fascinate you so much? When you look at what has happened to the divisions that Henry Cejudo has won the belt for, he beats Demetrius Johnson. He beats TJ because TJ came down. That was true. But then there was this never-ending limbo. Is, is he going to come back down and defend that belt? Flyweight was nearly destroyed and dissolved during that time. He never really defended the bantamweight title. He, he has the injury. He gets, he gets surgery done. Then all of a sudden, he just starts fighting. He tries to book a fight with Jose Aldo. He tries. He now has the fight with Dominic Cruz, while Aljamain Sterling and Corey Sanhagen, Marlon Moraes, and Peter Yan and all these guys are fighting all the top contenders. I just kind of wonder: is he hurting the divisions that he becomes the champion of? It's an interesting question. Eight seven seven fight ninety three eight seven seven three four 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 eight nine three. The more I think about this, the the less I blame Henry, or rather. I don't love what Henry has done, but I, I have a hard time getting mad at him for it, to be honest with you. Let me explain why. So there are two divisions here in question that we are discussing, 125 pounds or flyweight, 135 pounds or bantamweight. Let's take each one by piece, and then we'll put together a picture of, as a whole. You're right. He fights Demetrius Johnson. He beats him. Controversially, but he beats him. And then he takes on TJ Dillashaw. Now, between those two things happening, a lot had gone on, including but not limited to the arrival of Ben Askren and the departure of Demetrius Johnson. The UFC had ended up with this this historic trade with one championship to make that happen. You can like that fact or you can hate that fact, but it did, in fact, actually happen. That is not Henry Cejudo's fault. And then they began a great purge of the division to an extent while he was in it. Um, it obviously a lot happened afterwards too, but the reason how we know that is because Demet- excuse me, uh, TJ Dillashaw before that fight in that January of that year had come out and said, I'm going to put that division out of its misery, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to help the UFC kill it, blah, blah, blah. So that those wheels were already in motion in ways that had nothing to do with Henry Cejudo. Plus he'd had weight cutting issues to get down there anyway. But I agree I'll give him some blame, which is that if you're going to fight for titles, and I don't blame fighters for, for fighting for titles per se, but if you're going to do that, the the worst thing that can happen to a division is for the champion to just walk away and leave it and then let other members of the division fight for it. It just always creates chaos. Now, flyweight division, beyond Cejudo's involvement, they've got their own problems. I mean, I realize that the UFC 
you know, gutted it. So I, I, I point the finger at them to figure out how we got here in many, many ways. But also when you have Benavidez show up and then you have Figueredo showed up and Figueredo doesn't make weight and then he wins. It's like, you know, who, whose fault is that? I mean, that's not Henry's fault. And you could say the UFC shouldn't have gutted the division, but if they make a fight between two guys who are experienced and one can't make weight and therefore he's not eligible to win the title, I have a hard time at that point pointing the finger at Henry and I have a hard time at that point pointing the finger at the UFC. That, that really is, there's a lot of different levels of responsibility that happen there that have um, either little or nothing to do with them. So at 125 pounds, here is what I would say. Cejudo walking away is probably the biggest area of complaint anyone could possibly have with him for, for that particular division because outside of him, the UFC did a lot to damage it that had nothing to do with Henry specifically, either trading away pieces of marquee talent, gutting it, any number of trying to bring TJ down a division to get there with weird matchmaking in terms of who deserved title shots and not. Um, so you could absolutely point the finger there, Henry for walking away, but then the rest of the division, even if it's been gutted, if you're a high level pro and you're experienced, um, that is simply on them. So there's a lot to blame in terms of the situation at 125 pounds. At 135 pounds, listen, if you didn't want Henry to get a title shot and have a champ champ where, here's the other problem, you can blame Henry for giving up a title, but if you're gonna grant him the possibility to go up to 135 pounds, you know as the UFC, he's not going to be able to defend both of those. Meaning, once that fight is booked and it starts, one of those, if he wins, one of those titles is going to be given up. So again, you could sort of say to the UFC, they knew full well if he won that, he was either going to drop it immediately at 135 or he was going to drop 125. It was not going to be possible to maintain both. They, want to do, they, they wanted to have that to turn him into a star, which I think it has certainly boosted his profile. But this is the other side of that equation. I don't blame Henry for taking opportunities that could dramatically increase the level of fighter pay that he has by virtue of these opportunities. And of course, grow his star power. Now he wins and he drops it. Okay, he has to bear some responsibility for it, even if the UFC helped engineer it. And then he wants to fight uh, Jose Aldo next, even though Jose Aldo was coming off of a loss. Now, I certainly agree that some level of, what do you want to say? Sportsmanship, um, understanding the responsibilities of holding the title are supposed to matter. But to be honest with you, I've gone over this a lot with this debate about the interim title, why I've, I'm not as against it as I once was. It's a way to get fighters paid when they ordinarily wouldn't, right? We, we talk about this all the time on the show. People always say, oh yeah, I'm for getting the fighters paid. Okay, well, here are the things we can do to get them paid. Are you in favor of this? And every time they find a reason to not be in favor of it. I'm not saying you just hand out interim titles to everyone, but the idea that it's manifestly terrible when the UFC has said, that uh, uh, to Representative Mark Wayne Mullen and in depositions that the UFC title itself does not confer any status. It's just a trophy they give to the better fighter that night. You should take them at their word. We have conferred value upon it. The UFC is telling the world, for those who really want to pay attention, it doesn't have any. So you can get fighters paid more that way. Anyway, my point being is, as long as, long as you have, number one, a situation where fighters, we now know through court documentation, make between 15 and 18% of annual revenues every year, unchanging, right around that level, year over year over year over year. 
as long as that is the case and that they structure pay in a way where they tie matchmaking to star power, it's, it's a little bit unfair to judge fighters for following those incentives, especially when they have this narrow, narrow window in which to compete. Would I like it if Henry Cejudo had the competitive wherewithal at this uh, level of his career to say, I want to face the Sterlings and the Sandhagens and the Yans and whoever else? Yes, of course. And I think on some level, he'll eventually be pressured into competing against them. But the UFC, again, has set this up in a number of different ways, which is like, hey, you want to be, go be a champ champ? Okay, well, you know he's going to drop one as a consequence. And then he's going to look for the fights that are going to do the most to boost his ability to earn at the pay-per-view box office, so to speak, and then boost his star appeal. That is what Jose Aldo gets him over a rematch with Morais or a fight with Jan or a fight with Sandhagen or a fight with Sterling. And that's why the Cruz fight also is satisfying to him because it, he is simply responding to the set of incentives that have been laid out before him. So you're asking me who I think is responsible for this bottleneck that appears to be developing at 135 pounds and the, just the calamitous state of 125 pounds. Look, you cannot divorce Henry Cejudo from the equation there. On the other hand, to me, it is really not fair to look at Cejudo and say, this is his doing. It is? He got offered to go up to 135 pounds. That helped set the wheels in motion. He didn't trade Demetrius Johnson. He didn't gut the 125-pound division. And at 135 pounds, yeah, I, I do think it'd be great if he made other choices in terms of matchmaking and, and what he thought was the most responsible and reasonable challenge. But they have set up an incentive structure for him to do the exact opposite. And in the middle of a pandemic, granted he was going to fight Aldo before, but in the middle of a pandemic, we have discussed the cruise fight is on some level kind of understandable. Again, n you know, not even ranked, hasn't fought in three and a half years. There's no understanding that. But, um, you know, given the storyline and, and given what he, we know he's capable of coming off of um, long layoffs, um, it's certainly interesting. But Cejudo keeps answering the incentives that are laid out in front of him. And I have a hard time personally getting upset at a fighter for doing just that. I recognize the flyweight division is in disarray. There's just no two ways about it. I recognize it sucks and it, I hate it that Sanhagen and Jan and Sterling can't get title shots when they are clearly the most deserving. Henry is not fighting the toughest guys in his division. And to the extent you want to say his primary responsibility is a function of understanding the value, not really the value of the title, but the responsibilities that come with it. It's like, oh, right. You mean the same title that the UFC has told lawmakers and other officials uh, doesn't actually confer any status? They just give it as a trophy to the best fighter that night? We're now, we, I keep seeing this over and over and over and over again. Oh, we want to get fighters paid more. Okay, you want to get fighters paid more? Then cheer on fights like Aldo versus Cejudo. Cheer on fights like um, uh, Cejudo versus Cruz that have nothing to do with meritorious matchmaking but get him much further in terms of fighter pay. Because unless there's a union or unless the fighters get together or unless there's some kind of trade association or federal legislation, interim titles and weird-ass fights like that are the only mechanisms to get them there. That's it. That is it. What, show, show me the other one. Oh, exercise your leverage in contract negotiations. 
What leverage? What, what leverage? They don't have any. It doesn't exist. These are the tools to get fighters paid. Either create new tools or use these. I hear it all the time. I want to I see fighters get more money. No, you don't. You want to see them get more money while still see them cohere to the, to the expectations that have nothing to do with them getting money. That's the fantasy, and I, I labored under this delusion for a long time as well. That's the fantasy everyone tells themselves. It's not the actual reality of anything. So, very simple task for everyone. Okay, I want to see fighters get more money. Great. How do we get there? What are, what, are, what are the tactics that we're going to use to get there? So, unless you're either advocating for the Ali Act, or you're very pro-Project Spearhead, or something along those lines... Uh, your only other option, and you could even use the two of them at the same time, interim title fights, title fights, champ champ scenarios, taking fights against guys who don't deserve it because that's the way they're going to get the most money. That's it. That's it. There's really no other way. Uh, everything else, oh, yeah, you know, you win a bunch of, and then go to a contract negotiation and tell the UFC matchmakers you're just going to get more. Go look at what the court documents say. Those were raises that they had planned to give most of those fighters anyway. You... You don't see effective management in terms of pressuring fighter, excuse me, pressuring. Um, you don't see UFC man, uh, managers of UFC fighters, I should say. You don't see them pressuring the UFC to pay more than they ordinarily would uh, in, in the paperwork. It just doesn't really show up. They talk about it all the time, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really appear in the way that they say it does. These are your mechanisms. Either accept them or don't. But if you don't, then just stop saying you're in favor of getting fighters paid more. Because in all actuality, you probably aren't. These are the tools. Either use them or, 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 or abandon them. This week on World of Basketball, former American college stars Jimmy and Billy Barron joined the show. And Billy spoke about the famous, heated Red Star-Partisan rivalry. Let's say Partisan has the home court. We'll have to drive to a separate parking lot on the other side of the city. The team will meet there, and then we'll all board the bus with, let's say, four police cars ushering us to the gym. The place is already half full, and it's an hour and a half before the game. I mean, I looked at Marcus Page, who was on Partisan, and I said, "What's this? how does this compare to Duke? Carolina. He was like, can't because this is nowhere near Duke Carolina. Carolina is like, this is so much crazier. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on Pandora and every Monday on the Sirius XM app. Joining us now on the hotline, former UFC lightweight champion of the world returns to action when he rematches Donald Cerrone on, let's, let's call this correctly, the main event essentially of the prelims. It'll be the last fight on ESPN before the pay-per-view starts. It's actually a welterweight this time. Should be kind of interesting. It's the one and only Anthony Pettis. Hi, Anthony. How are you? Yo, yo, yo. What's up, man? Hey, how is the uh, COVID protocol? I've been seeing some of the swab tests. Are they as awful as they look? Man, it's not fun. You know, I, I had to get one of them tests before way back in the day for a whooping cough like when I was a kid. I think we someone at my school had it. And then uh, this time, yeah, it was, it, was, it was the exact same thing. Not as fun as the first time. Is there any way to describe what it feels? I've actually had no surgery, and even I don't think anyone shoved anything far back in my face as that. Yeah, I had no surgery too, and not uh, different. Like because you're you're awake during it, and you're freaking, you can feel it. Um, honestly, mine was a lot shorter than everybody else's. I got to record like my coaches and my little bros, and they took like th- uh, like extra three or four extra turns on, on theirs and mine. <laughs> 
<laughs> I guess that sucks to be them. Um, but in general, it sounds oh, like yeah. uh, sounds like you're feeling safe down there in Jacksonville, huh? Yeah, you know what? I think um, you know it is what it is. Like you know, it definitely is like a weird time um, for for the world, man. But um, the UFC is doing a good job keeping it safe. You know, the protocol at the hotel, no one's allowed here except for the athletes that get tested. You gotta you know you gotta have a wristband that shows that you pass your test every day. So I mean, it's safe as possible. I, I would say. Yeah. Did you fly or did you drive down there? You flew, right? I flew. Yeah, I flew. Well, I've I've been told that the flying was the scariest part. Was that weird? Flying out of uh, Milwaukee? Not at all, man. Milwaukee was a ghost airport. I I, I went to Milwaukee. Like I had my own row to just chill in. No one was on the plane. I think there's like ten people on our plane. And then um in Charlotte, it was a little more packed. But um I thought like Charlotte was a little more normal than Milwaukee. Like people, the restaurants were open. People were acting you know, pretty normal. Oh, I see. All right. Well, you know, I, 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 I talked to somebody who flew from, well, you know what? They flew out of New York. And obviously that's going to be a oh, little bit sense. different. Right? <laughs> that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fair enough. It answers sort of my own question. Hey, well, let's talk about how you're feeling this week. Well, first of all, let's talk about the weight, uh, 170. Did UFC come to you all with 170 or how did it go that, I mean, I know you've been competing in the weight class and so does he, but who made the call to do it at welterweight versus lightweight? Yeah, no, the UFC called, like, man, 21 days ago, actually. Like, uh, the Monday, this 21 days from Monday is when they called me and said, hey, do you want to fight Cowboy Cerrone? 170 pounds, and we didn't know where we were going to fight at. Um, and I wasn't doing nothing, so I said, yeah, let's, let's do it. And I was in quarantine like everybody else. It was weird, because, like, in the quarantine, I found out a lot about my, my wastefulness in training camps. You know, like, I, I, I go to training camps, and I do them the same, and I... I got this team that I go with, and we, we practice at 1.30, and then when I come back, I do my pad work, I do my strength and conditioning. It was such a set routine, and if I missed one of those practices, that was like telling me how prepared I was for this camp, for my previous camps. But this camp, you know, I had to, I had to reinvent it all. You know, I had to pick a couple guys that I knew that I would that would get me better for 21 days. Obviously, my coaches that I always stay with, and we had to restructure these camps for us to, for, for me. You know, all, every training session in this camp was, Spent on how does Anthony Pettis win this fight, not how do we get a team better, how do we get a bunch of guys better. It was both coaches were watching every practice. Uh, the three coaches were watching every practice and seeing all the mistakes I was making. And I felt it clicking because um, you know, I wasn't dead tired from strength and conditioning and pad work and trying to go spar. But that was my main source of, of getting in shape was getting to fighting. So it, it just felt good to do this camp. Honestly, after the quarantine, I'll do a lot of my camps this way now. I'm changing the whole vibe of how I do training camps. So what does that mean going forward? Let's assume all the gyms open back up. You would have them all together again? Like, how would you arrange it in a world where everyone can go to the gym again? I would, I would, once, once everybody goes to the gym again? Oh, you mean my training camps? Yeah, the future ones. Okay. Like, like, yeah, 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 the future I, I ones. I no longer will be part of a group. You know, I'm not going to go be part of a team. And not saying, like, that was a bad thing. It's just not for me. You know, I've, I've done it. So, I've been in this game for so long. I fought so many, I fought so many good guys. Um, you know, I, I know how to do this. It's just... Um, I got to do it for me. You know, I can't go to a, a one thirty practice and like hour and a half of practice is kind of helping other people get better and focusing on other people's game plans. Where I, I, now, you know, if I'm going to go to practice, I'm hiring the guys that are going to get me better and focus on me for an you know, hour and a half. I mean, just do, do just do the math on that. You know, an hour and a half, five days a week, opposed to maybe thirteen, you know, fifteen minutes because because there's so many guys on that floor that I can't really, um, you know, get my experience up. So, I mean, we're all, we're all learning it as, as we go. And I just think this, this quarantine made me really sit back and look at a training camp. And the way I feel right now coming into this fight, you know, I'm only four pounds overweight. Obviously, it's welterweight, but still, like, I didn't have to do all the things I was doing because 
that's just how it's done. You know, it's just, it's just like, uh, I didn't ask questions. I was like, yeah, one thirty is pro practice, strength and conditioning is 8 a.m., and pad works at 7 p.m. Show up for it all or, or I'm not going to win the fight. Whereas this time, you know, we had to reinvent it. That's really interesting. Anthony Pettis joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. You know what's kind of funny, Anthony? For someone who's never done this, it, we hear fighters, senior fighters, which I would, I mean, you're, you know, 30 plus fights into your career just in MMA, and they'll talk about these radical changes that they didn't realize they needed to make until very much into their career. Let me give you another example. It's a different one, but it, it applies. So Jared Cannonier fought at heavyweight, then he goes to light heavyweight, then he goes to middleweight, and he's just killing people. And he was like, I guess I just didn't know I needed to be that small. It's interesting, right? Like sometimes the things that seem kind of obvious, they're not. Like, do you, do you find that weird that it takes thirty fights to really understand yourself and the best way to train? And is there a way to shorten that window? And that's the question. If, if, if I knew the answer to that question, you know, we would all be on. <laughs> the hardest part of my career is the success I had so quick. You know, I, I came in and I, I, I crushed in the WC, I crushed in the UFC, world champion, and then I'm I go fight RDA. Uh, Eddie Elvers, Edson Barboza, three losses in a row from coming from unstoppable. So I had to make a big career adjustment after that fight, and that's what was a huge decision going to 45. Like, yo, I need to try some new things. Like, so, so I feel like I've, I've been in a position of trying new things and trying to figure it out, but I didn't change. The one thing I didn't change is how I trained. I trained at 1.30, I trained at 7 p.m., and I trained at 8, 9 a.m. for strength and conditioning. Um, because that was the that was just the schedule, you know. Like we don't ask, I didn't really ask questions. That's just how I came in, and that's what we did. Um, whereas now, like you know, I'm doing it this way. I'm like, man, I get more out of my day by pulling back as many how many guys are in my practice room and how many coaches are, are giving me advice and my my winning rounds. And that's what matters. Like, how do I win rounds? How do I how do I look the best I ever looked before and getting back to doing what I do, range fighting, looking sharp out there, all, uh, submissions off my back. You know, I tapped into that game again, and, um, man, I'm excited to go out there and, and, and show off again. You know, the world's watching this fight, and, and this is what I live for, these moments right here. You know, I don't even think you were training the wrong way before, Anthony. Again, I'm, I'm just speaking from afar as a casual observer. I don't really know what the, the, the right or wrong answer is. But let me just let me offer you this as a, a, a way to challenge it a little bit, which is to say, I think a lot of fighters early on, even when they're UFC ready, early on, let's say in their UFC tenure, they benefit from a more structured environment. They don't really understand how to train. And then I see it all the time as MMA fighters get a little bit more senior, they begin to build structures around them rather than responding to the structures in many ways what you're going through, Anthony, is something I've heard from other fighters. It sounds like a natural evolution. Oh, man, I should have did this interview two years ago. <laughs> I'm not saying I've got all the answers. I'm just saying I've heard the story before, yeah, if that makes but no, sense. You're, you're, you're definitely on, you're, you're, it's on something. You know, and you hear it all the time, man, but it's just like, you know, I say it after every time I lose. I'm like, yo, I'm going to come back and do this training camp differently. But then you go back, and it, the, the structure's already there. It's in place. People are following that structure. That, like, that 130 pro practice is always there. So if I want to go back and get into shape, what do I do? I go show up at 130 and start getting back into that mode. And then by the time I'm three weeks in the camp, four weeks in the camp, I'm like, damn, I'm doing it again. The last question is I want to talk about the fight itself. Is there a financial change to build around you that's significant? How different is the cost to do what you want to do now? How much, how much does it cost for me to do the training camps? Meaning going into to practice costs a certain amount. Now building a, a camp around you in a very specific way probably costs a different amount. I'm wondering what that difference thing. is. No, I, 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 own, I own my gyms, man. So like it doesn't cost me anything more. Like It's just mm -hmm. me having to sit down and restructure how I do get things done.
like you said, you know, the, the newer guys that are coming up in the UFC, and I got them guys in my gym. You know, we and I was one of those guys. You know, and, and that that format was was awesome. It gave me a world title. It gave me two world titles. It gave me a, a 145 pound title shot, um, a win at 170 pounds, and I had some success with that format. So it's like really just pulling back and like, yo, do I? Like this is for I'm just I'm, I'm this is one of the fights where I'm just going out there and, and trying something new for the first time in a long time. Um, it's not when it comes to training, so I'm excited, and that brings the nerves, that brings the excitement, um, and then obviously what's what's at stake. You know, the world's watching. They put us on on the ESPN main event. You know, everybody's gonna be tuning into that, and you know, you know what I do when it's when the, when the lights are on. It's showtime. The other part is here. You beat this guy before, and, and it wasn't especially close. You beat him in half of a round. I mean, I wonder to what extent you feel like there is an obligation to match that, or is that so far in the past? You know, who cares at this point? No, that's always my game set, man. Like my 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 mindset is always to go out there and finish these. We don't get paid for overtime. You know, my coach always says it. You know, get in there, get up, get out. Um, but as you know, the guys who I fight. Um, they're always the top of the top, top of the hill. You know, I'm fighting the best of the best always, so um, it doesn't always turn out that way. Um, but I, I just feel like Cowboy Cerrone, man, he's he's, he's as tough as they come. He's just like me, you fight anytime, any place, anywhere, um, and, and we're about to do it again. You know what's real weird about this? He, he had some criticism after his last loss, a lot of which I thought was unfair. But the one thing that sort of stands out to me that it seems it might be fair is, since you guys fought, I think I counted you had 13 fights. This will be your 14th, right? Since he fought you, he's had 26. 26 fights. That's a lot of fights. And he tried to fight Connor after fighting Hernandez, Iaquinta, Ferguson, and then Gaethje. I wonder what you make of that competitive schedule he keeps. Is it the secret to his success, or is it the reason why he can only get so far at times? A little bit of both, man. I think um, when you see, when, when the people say, you know, Cowboy didn't show up, it's because... It, it's a game of numbers, man. Like if you're out there in front of people five times a year, you're, you're likely more likely to have a tough fight than somebody who fought twice that year. So, um, you know, he's fought 20 times and I fought, and he fought double the times I fought. And that's what I respect about Cowboy. He's, he, he just, he's, he's here to fight. Um, but that is probably the reason why he sometimes has hard, hard times at these biggie fights. Cause every fight for him is a big fight. And I, I probably feel like when he loses, this, the fights are bigger than when, when he wins. Like, when he's have his win streak on, he's like, oh, now I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I feel that way, too. And then when you get a loss, you're like, oh, shit, this next fight's the biggest fight. And the next fight's the biggest fight. So, I mean, I, I just feel like um, Cowboys, we, we all know, he fights anybody, any place, any time. But when it comes to the big fights, you know, that's where the people say Cowboy doesn't show up. Um, and maybe that has something to do with it, the level of competition. But if you want to be the best in the world, you got to fight the best. And I respect Cowboy for always going out there and putting it all on the line. Talk to me about the main event, if you can. I know you faced Tony Ferguson. It was a hell of a fight, back and forth. And he takes on Justin Gaethje. Any sense about who has the upper hand here? Um, I said it, I already said for this, my prediction for that fight is if it's by knockout, Gaethje's going to win. But um anything else tony man tony's just one of them guys that you got to knock him out to stop him but i remember i hit him with a big right hand and he did a front roll i'm like what like, a front roll like i almost dropped him and he just did a front roll in the middle of the fight i was like okay like, i should have took his back but it kind of just caught me off guard because it was like unexpected and usually i'm the guy doing the unexpected stuff to people so um yeah man tony's just got that that itch factor and i respect his game as well you know what i noticed uh uh, uh anthony is 
again, a very amateur's perspective, but I noticed when a lot of strikers in the UFC strike, they kind of joust. Like, they take space away, and then they get together. There's, they, they go apart, and then they get together. Anthony just, or excuse me, uh, Tony, rather, he just stays in your face where the rhythm is constantly disrupted. I wonder if you experience that and what that might mean for even someone like Nurmagomedov if they end up fighting. Yeah, his rhythm isn't... Um... It's not Dutch kickboxing. It's not. It's not even Mexican boxing. It's not MMA fighting. It's a totally different rhythm. Like something you don't get ready for because the elbows are coming behind the punches, and it's almost like he wants to get hit because then he makes you throw bigger because you're like, well, I rocked him. I'm like, yo, I just gotta hit him harder now. And then I was making my punches bigger, and then that made my my cardio more tired. And then it was opening up for hit, opening him up for elbows, and that's when I got caught with some big elbows because my punches were getting bigger. So, um, yeah, he's just a tough dude, bro. I think he just. He just, um, he wants it. He believes that he's supposed to win and he wants it. And that's, that's what you see in his fights. All right. Last question about this. Who's a tougher fight for Nurmagomedov, Tony or Justin? Man, Khabib is just such a good wrestler. I, I'd say Tony just because his, his ability to submit. Like that's what needs Khabib. That's what it's going to be Khabib. Somebody who can hurt him on the feet, make him make a mistake in his wrestling and capitalize on that mistake. Because if you don't submit him, you're just going to end up on your back for... 25 minutes and that's a that's a shitty place to be against Khabib yeah certainly is before I let you go last question about you which is let's say you get your hand raised on Saturday and you get out relatively scot-free not too many bumps and bruises the UFC is going to be looking to put on as many fights as they can and they're going to have some travel restrictions for some fighters who are outside the United States are, are you interested in being as active as possible like what kind of plan do you have for activity yeah, I'm active as possible, man. I'm 33 years old, and I just feel like, you know, I need to get a, a couple wins together to get my, my rally back. So until that happens, I'm active, I'm active as possible. Fair enough. Uh, Anthony, really appreciate your time. I know it's unusual circumstances. Can't wait to see you compete on ESPN against Cowboy Cerrone. Thank you so much. Thanks, bro. There he is, Anthony Pettis, uh, one of the very best. The Ock and Barack Show. is either make the big fights happen, fighters take less money, or stand their ground and wait till we get to a point where their audiences, that might not happen for another year. The big fighters like AJ, like Canelo, all of these big names, are they willing to wait a year without fighting? Can the networks deal with that? Can the promoters deal with that? And eventually it's going to come down to the point where you either take it or you leave it. There's no more money for you to get. The Ock and Barack Show, weekdays from noon till 3 Eastern, only on Sirius XM Fight Nation, Channel 156. Where does a win put Cruz, Dominic Cruz, on Saturday? There was audio uh, about what John Anik had to say in terms of the physical toll that Cruz had paid to even just do basic things. Do we have that audio? And if so, let's play it, please. It would be one of the biggest wins in UFC history and one of the biggest singular accomplishments in the history of professional sports in this country. In terms of an athlete parallel, a lot of people point to the former Carolina Panthers standout, Thomas Davis, the linebacker, who went through one major surgery after another. But Luke, I mean, you know the human body well. You're a weightlifting guy. Five major invasive surgeries for Dominic Cruz. Three ACLs, a shoulder, a devastating arm break that took a lot longer to heal. That says nothing of the torn groin or the feet that he has to tape up to do live TV. He just has to tape his feet to put a pair of dress shoes on. I've mm. spent so much time with this man, and he willed this to happen. I mean, it's I feel badly for Aljamain Sterling, who in my mind is the number one guy, that maybe a global pandemic was the thing that got in the way of it for him. Although Aljo had a, had a surgery in his own right, and I think that for Henry Cejudo, this fight obviously had upside because Dom is the consensus greatest bantamweight of all time. But uh, 
Dom's just not an excuse maker. He's one of the most mentally hardened individuals I've ever met. And if the physical is right, as he says it is, I think he's got a great chance. My biggest question technically in the fight is, has Dominic Cruz lost a step? And he says, no, I'm just as fast. I got to see it to believe it. Boy, the answers don't come much better than that in terms of understanding what Cruz has done and what he's up against here. You could say all-time bantamweights. I think that the answer is pretty clear. It'd make him the best at that point. But then you have other situations where um, you could say best of UFC champions. To me, that's a more difficult win or, or um, measurement to have because of the inactivity. I mean, he's had like, f- I think he's had four fights in nine years, something like that, because of inactivity. So that's a little bit harder. You know, just guys like John Jones, who've been active for long stretches of the 2010s, it's going to be pretty hard to beat. But to me, I think the most relevant question here is where does a win put him in terms of sports stories for ultimate comebacks? Uh, Got to tell you, it puts him on the short list. To be perfectly honest with you, I have seen some pretty impressive ones, right? Um, Adrian Peterson, not knowing if his career was going to be the same after uh, tearing his ACL and MCL in December of 2011. That was a bad one, and he came back and had a phenomenal career, right? In 20, I think in 2012, he had six yards per carry with 12 touchdowns, like a Pro Bowl-level performance. Paul George uh, breaking essentially his shin uh, and then having to come back and returning to all-star form has been pretty incredible, to be perfectly honest with you. There was an Olympic gymnast named John Orozco. Uh, who had a torn Achilles and a whole other thing. And he came back in the 2012 London Games um, and even earned a spot in the 2016 Rio Games. Um, Buster Posey, brutal injury in May of 2011. When he was a San Francisco Giants catcher, he had a collision uh, with then Marlins player Scott Cousins. He had a fractured fibula, torn ligaments in his ankle. And then he came back the next season, 346 batting average in 148 games. Right, and he played 147 games in each of the following four seasons, and uh, 150 in 2015. Right, and by the way, that incident created the Posey rule, which means you couldn't have home plate collisions in baseball. How about Tiger Woods? 2008 had a double stress fracture on his left tibia, played anyway, gritted through it, uh, five days of golf, 91 holes, uh, and then still won um, the championship. Ridiculous. Uh, you could go on and on. Tom Brady's had a series of injuries. Giancarlo Stanton's had some injuries. Kerry Strug, Victor Cruz, Jamal Charles. I, mean, I, I, I can name a lot of different athletes. And I'll, I'll say the one that was really impressive was not merely coming back from injury, but Tiger Woods in 2018 and 2019. I mean, we wondered if he ever play again uh, for a time where he was dominating the game and in the aughts and then had just year after year after year, not really scandal. He had to change his swing back injuries. You remember that one time where he was arrested? I think he was driving or he was found one way or the other where he looked just to be in terrible condition. And he had all kinds of prescription drugs. He was being prescribed and drinking, you know, all marital problems. I mean, just total nightmare of injuries and personal issues and um, career fallout. And then he still came back and won the masters for the fifth time. That is incredibly impressive. I mean, there's just no, maybe that might be the greatest up there. I am telling you now, I don't care what fan, uh, or rather what sport, I should say, you are a fan of. It does not matter 
Dominic Cruz, if he might already deserve to be on this list, by the way, but let's say he's not. Let's say he has to beat a guy who was an Olympic champion, a flyweight champion, and a bantamweight champion. Let's say Dominic Cruz comes back at 35 years of age, unranked, off for almost four years, basically. Let's say he comes back and wins that. Dude, I don't care. I don't care what your favorite sport is. Cruz is on the short list. He's on the short list. We were talking about a guy who's had multiple ACL tears in both knees. Shoulder surgery. Terrible, terrible feet problems. To the point where he literally couldn't... Do you think he wanted to be commentating this whole time? I mean, these guys who you... We, these stories we're talking about, the Woodses and the Cruises and the Posies, they took time off. They didn't lose time in their career like this guy did. Not even close. Not nearly the same amount. And it's not because Dominic Cruz is some kind of, well, I'm going to be very careful about the way I come back. I mean, this is a guy who says ring rust doesn't exist when we know it's affected some of the very best fighters in some of the biggest moments in both boxing and MMA. And you, you think about the injuries he's had. You know, certainly some of them that, that I've described are worse. You know, you get a brain injury. That, that can be quite literally traumatic. But... To have a, a sport where, particularly the style that he employs, where mobility and balance and weight shifting and, to an extent, sprinting and, and turning and being light on your feet and disguising what you're doing with your feet while moving them, right, almost like a, he's doing a dance, that's, that is central to his style. And every part of the structure of the human body that makes that possible from the waist on down was damaged in him damaged in very severe ways. Remember he had a torn ACL and then he used the cadaver to the, the cadaver tissue to make it work. And then the cadaver tissue failed and he had to have it done over again. Then he tore the ACL in the other knee, right? I mean, this guy has been put through the ringer. The fact that he even still wants to compete is insane. You've never seen someone have to take layoffs like him and then come back and have the success like him. You've never seen someone this talented who had to sit aside that many years to just deal with the problem. Remember, in 2008, he fought twice. 2009, he fought three times. 2010, he fought three times. 2011, he fought twice, including when he beat Demetrius Johnson in Washington, D.C. I was cage side for that. Didn't fight at all in 2012. Didn't fight at all in 2013. Comes back in late 2014 and beat the absolute breaks off Takeya Mizugaki in a minute and one second. Doesn't fight at all the rest of that year. Doesn't fight at all. Excuse me. I had to sneeze. At all in 2015. Fights three times in 2016, beating TJ Dillashaw, beating Uriah Faber, and then admittedly losing to Cody Garbrandt pretty cleanly there in the end. Cody Garbrandt hasn't won since. And now you're going to come back having not fought in 2017, not fought in 2018, not fought in 2019, and now you're going to fight in 2020. And you're going to fight for a title, and you might beat this guy? Having every aspect of your body from the waist down been shattered and destroyed uh, show show me show me stories that are clearly better than that you can't you can't i've said it before and i'll say it again he comes back and he wins on saturday that is an all-time sports comeback story that is on par with the woodses and the carrie struggs and the victor cruises 
and, and any NFL player you want to imagine. It is right on par, if not better than most. And I watch all those sports, less of women's gymnastics, but the rest I watch. Adrian Peterson plays for the Redskins for crying out loud. You haven't seen someone do that. Multiple ACL tears, shoulder surgery, Botox in the bottom of his feet, losing, let's see, in his prime, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years. He's lost. And he's still competing for titles. Granted, a little bit by fiat, but it's happening. Pretty goddamn impressive if you ask me. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at LThomasNews and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.